Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing who will be taking part at the CanMed 2021 event this April 12th through 14th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to canmedevents.com to learn all about the CanMed 2021 event and get your tickets at our special early bird rate. While you're at canmedevents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts to stay up to date with all the news surrounding this industry-leading event. We still have our safety keynote, panel discussions, and additional oral presenters to announce, along with some other surprises. And here's a special tip. If you sign up using the form on our podcast page, canmedevents.com slash coffee talk, you will be entered to win two tickets to the CanMed VIP dinner. You will also find all the previous episodes of the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast there as well, so it's a good page to check out. This episode's guest is plant pathology expert Dr. Zamir Punja of Simon Fraser University's Department of Biological Sciences. Zamir's research investigates the causes and management of plant diseases on cannabis and hemp, including fusarium, penicillium, powdery mildew, botrytis, as well as other new and emerging plant pathogens. His CanMed 2018 presentation featured several amazing images Zamir's team captured using an electron microscope. The image of powdery mildew mycelia wrapped around a cannabis trichome is one I won't soon forget. Be sure to check out the link to that video in the show description. In addition to his work on plant diseases, Zamir's team has used their electron microscope to investigate the structure of cannabis trichomes and will present those findings at CAMED 2021. I expect we will see even more amazing images during that presentation. In fact, Zamir gave us a few sneak peek preview images that I've included in the show description. Topics discussed on the podcast include how diseases infect and affect cannabis plants, which cultivation methods are more prone to infection, how to breed for pathogen resistance, which pathogens pose a risk to consumers, and how each of the four observed cannabis trichome structures differ and what each might be responsible for. Before we get to my conversation with Samir, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, The Growers Network. Growers Network is committed to providing the highest quality cannabis content, education, and resources. Be sure to check out their Canna Crib series, your behind-the-scenes look at some of the most sophisticated and technologically advanced growers in the world. Visit them at youtube.com slash growersnetwork. And finally, this episode of the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast is fueled by the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. Hemp coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product, rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Zamir Punja. Good afternoon, Samir. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. 
Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you today because I know you've done a lot of research into plant pathogens, excuse me, plant pathogens and diseases that affect the cannabis plant. And coincidentally, our team here at Medicinal Genomics has developed some qPCR DNA-based tests that can identify some of the very same species you've worked on. So although I'm familiar with some of the species and I've read about how they can uh, affect the cannabis plant, we don't get to work with any actual plants here in our lab like you do. So I'm really interested in getting your perspective. Um, and it's really fascinating to me. So um, with that, I think maybe a great place to start is with Fusarium, because I know that your team recently published uh, two, two papers on that fungi. So um, I was wondering, can you tell us a bit about Fusarium and how it affects the cannabis plant? Yeah, thanks. So we started working on these various diseases about uh, four years ago. And the first thing we did was conduct surveys of a range of different producers out here in, in, uh, in primarily in British Columbia, although we did get a chance to get some samples from back east in Ontario. And the first disease that popped out, uh, the one that was the most visible was Fusarium. And uh, on the plants, uh, on flowering plants, Fusarium will show up as, as sort of a yellowing of the lower leaves, which is then followed by, um, in many cases, a wilting. And eventually, if the disease progresses, it, it'll kill the plant. So um, in many other crops, it's referred to as Fusarium yellows. But what we saw in cannabis was more or less a root infection and a crown infection. And so when you see a plant that's yellowing, that's, that, that's wilting, if you examine the, the, the roots, they're going to be brown. Uh, some of them may, may be rotted off. And then if you look at the crown, you'll see sort of a pinkish orange, uh, maybe even a dark brown discoloration that would indicate that it is, it is a fusarium. So you see it on, on those flowering plants, but even more importantly, we found it on vegetatively propagated cuttings. So, you know, a lot of the growers obviously start their plants from cuttings. And, and in fusarium, we saw a lot of damping off. And so in other words, rather than the cuttings going ahead and rooting, they were starting to literally fall over uh, and, and they rotted. And that came as a surprise to us. And so when we isolated from there, we found a lot of fusarium. And going back to your earlier point, uh, the main uh, species is Fusarium oxysporum, which is the, the Fusarium that causes a lot of wilt in, in many other plants like tomatoes and, and basil and lettuce. Um, in addition, we found Fusarium solani. Uh, solani is the one that sort of causes more of the damping off and the, and the root rot. And then the third species that we found just recently this past year was Fusarium proliferatum. And that one actually moves up the plant. It actually causes the crown infection, but then you start seeing discoloration pretty much all the way to the top. And so those three species, you can sort of tell uh, by looking uh, whether it's a crown infection or root infection or whether it's progressing up the plant. But I think, as you mentioned, the, the diagnostic, the PCR diagnostic tests are going to be the most accurate in telling which of those three species uh, are actually present uh, in, in a crop. Now, you mentioned that in flowering, it can kind of present as having yellowing leaves. Um, are there signs and symptoms that can be visible sort of before that flowering stage? The, the only symptom I would say is a stunting. So in other words, your plants haven't grown to the same height that they should have. They, they don't look like they're, you know, really happy. Maybe they, you think it might be a fertilizer problem. 
uh, it ends yeah. up that it's actually fusarium that's infected the roots and potentially started infecting the crown. Interesting. And you're saying that, you know, cuttings can obviously take the, if a, if a mother plant is infected, can kind of take it into the cuttings. Would the mother plants really be showing any signs and symptoms or is that sort of, <laughs> is that sort of the problem? So that, that's where the problem actually started. The mother plants tend to not show any symptoms. And so we think the fusarium originated, uh, I don't know, many years ago, even before we started sampling four years ago, uh, from mother plants or disease plants that were maybe passed along uh, from one grower to another or from, from one friend to another, unknowingly that they already had some fusarium probably in the roots or maybe in the crown. Um, and then those, those mothers are grown up. And if they're really diseased, you will get the mothers dying. They, they will mm. collapse. And, and obviously, then you know it's time to get rid of them. But if you don't, don't see those symptoms and you take cuts from them, you, have the, you run the risk of actually transmitting fusarium into the next crop. And I suppose, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you did have a, an otherwise healthy mother plant that develops the infection later on in life, you wouldn't really see that, that stunting on in the initial growing phase. Is that fair to say? Yes, correct. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's hard to tell when a mother is, is, well, too old, if I can say that. We, mm. we tend to recommend mother plants be tossed out after six months to a year uh, and not keep them for four or five years, as some, as some producers might be doing. Um, at that stage, I think you might start seeing symptoms of yellowing and, and stunting, in which case you know it's time to get rid of them. Right. And I know that... It's, it's not uncommon for a, a flowering plant to sort of, you know, have some yellowing leaves as it sort of directs more nutrients into creating buds and things like that. So is there more of a, a telltale sign of, you know, what's kind of typical yellowing versus a, a fusarium infection? Yeah, so most of the, the, most of the infections that we do see that are quite severe would probably be within the first two weeks of flower. Um, that's when the plant is producing, you know, trying to get a lot of its, its energy into the flowering phase, and it puts a lot of stress on, those, on that particular plant. And uh, that's when you start seeing the yellowing and the wilting. And in many cases, those plants actually die before they get into full flower. So when you wow. got a plant that's in full flower, and it may be showing a little bit of yellowing here and there, that could just be nutrition or, envir or environmental stress or something else. If it's fusarium, it's probably going to go down within the first three weeks of flower. Wow. And now, is there anything you can do once, once you've identified a fusarium infection? Yeah, so the first place to start is with the cuttings. Um, if you know your mom, your mother plants are clean or there's a way to test those, we actually haven't, de haven't developed a testing method yet to test the mothers to see if they're carrying fusarium. And part of it is, you know, the plants are large and, and we don't know what part to actually sample for the, for the analysis. But if you're, you know, if you know the, the the history of the mother plant and you're, you're, you know, it's a good source and it's clean, um, the first place to test would be the cuttings. So cuttings start dying; they're not rooting well. It could be fusarium present there. Um, we're we're looking at a number of biological control agents uh, that are registered. So, for example, trichoderma, um, gliocladium. There's products out there that are quite effective in keeping the fusarium on the cuttings at bay provided they're added early. So in other words, once the cuts are made, uh, the cuts could either be dipped in fusarium or, sorry, in, in the um, 
uh, trachoderma or the, the glioclatium, or you can apply a drench uh, before the cuttings are actually rooted to actually prevent the infection from getting in. And now, so how big or widespread is, uh, is the fusarium problem? Is it something that's pretty common in, in cannabis cultivation? Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, I, the short answer to that is the more we look, the more we find. Huh. Um, I think I would, I would have to say out of, out of the 12 or 15 uh, commercial producers I've sampled, every one of them had uh, either very, very trace amounts of fusarium to fusarium in about 30% of their plants. So I, I think it's, it's there. Uh, it's had a chance to sort of move around. Um, and depending on the, the variety or the strain, depending on the growing conditions, it may or may not be a major problem, or it end up it could end up being a, a major problem um, in in some grower grow facilities. Yeah, and, and you bring up an interesting point. So, do environmental conditions kind of play a role in this? I know that you know, for example, with powdery mildew, um, you know, if humidity is really high, that tends to to breed more powdery mildew. Where if you have sort of your levels in check, it's it's less of an issue. Um, is there a similar kind of trigger, environmental trigger for fusarium? Um, so fusarium, it, you know, it, it grows over a pretty wide range, anyway from 20 to 30 degrees Celsius, or you're looking at 75 to 90, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I would say overall that as it gets warmer, as you start hitting the, the, seven, uh, the 90 to 95 degree range, uh, fusarium can be quite a bit worse. Um, than it would be at, at lower temperatures. It also seems to like moisture. And of course, that's kind of hard to avoid because we tend to, you know, really water the plants and make sure the cuts have, are well watered. Fusarium will grow and actually it'll spread with water. So you can have spores moving from, uh, let's say, a propagation room where you've got cuttings uh, into an, an adjoining room if the water is being recirculated. Uh, you can actually get fusarium spores moving from one location to another. Wow. And I know you, you mentioned that there could be some treatments that you do to the cuttings after you take them from the mother to sort of maybe uh, prevent an infection. But so say you already are a few weeks into uh, flowering and, and you're seeing those signs and it, it, looked, it doesn't look good. Um, is it a lost cause at that point or is there anything you can do to sort of salvage that plant? Yeah, no, I, I would go in and, and pull those plants out, particularly the ones that are yellowing and starting to wilt. Uh, there's always a concern that as the fusarium develops on the roots and the crowns, it's going to produce a lot of spores. Uh, mm. and, and if you've got plants, uh, let's say, sitting on the same table or in, in the same growing area, you could have spread, uh, as I mentioned, uh, in the water. But interestingly enough, it also moves in the air. So if you've got uh, fans moving spores back and forth, you could actually be moving uh, inoculum from that diseased plant or diseased plants into other areas in, in the growing room. So my recommendation, plants look bad, they're yellowing, uh, grab them, take them out, bag them, and, and toss them. Wow, that's interesting. So does that mean that like spores could even infect uh, maybe if there were some plants that were further further in their development, they have full flowers, could it actually infect the flowers themselves? Okay, so the, yeah, so that's a good news, bad news story. The good news is that uh, if the spores do move around, they, they will not infect uh, plants uh, at flower or even at a younger stage. This fusarium seems to like to get in early. Uh, so it'll get in with the cuttings. It might get in at, in the vegetative stage. But once you've sort of passed that, uh, the plants seem to be able to withstand the, the, um, the infection level. So 
if the plants have made it through at, at a certain stage, you're probably not going to worry about Fusarium moving around too much from plant to plant. But we have found that uh, if spores are produced, let's say there's a plant dying uh, and it's producing spores at the base, at the crown, those spores, once they get up into the air, can actually infect flowers of a neighboring plant. So if you've got plants a little bit further down, um, those spores can actually get up into, into the flower head and establish themselves uh, in, in the flower if the humidity is right, you know, if it's, if it's really humid and if it's hot. And so we've seen what we call Fusarium flower, flower rot or Fusarium bud rot, which in many ways looks a lot like Botrytis. Hmm. But it's only when you isolate uh, and recover that you actually find out it's not Botrytis and it's actually Fusarium. Wow. And now, would that pose any uh, health harm or health risk to, to consumers if uh, a flower was infected with that? Yeah. So, the, so the, yeah. So, I, and, and you're probably familiar with Fusarium head blight in cereals and Fusarium in corn. We know uh, many of these species, uh, things like Fusarium oxysporum, can produce mycotoxins. And hmm. uh, there is a risk that, that if you had severe infections by Fusarium, uh, in the flowers that that could cause certain mycotoxins to accumulate. Uh, because we've only just published those two papers in the last month or so, um, I think the regulatory agencies and, and I think in general, the community hasn't quite recognized that there is a potential for uh, Fusarium species to infect uh, the flower. Again, it's not something that I would I would necessarily raise a flag and say, you know, this is the end of the the cultivation of cannabis. I think it's a, it's 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 there. I think we're going to find a little bit of it. I would say maybe one percent of the flower could have fusarium, but it, it's something that I think we need to be aware of. And certainly, um, there should be screening methods for detecting some of the specific mycotoxins produced by fusarium. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really interesting because I I went back and I and I rewatched your your lecture from CAMED 2018, where you're talking about a lot about Fusarium and some of the other pathogens that can infect cannabis. And a thing that stood out to me is that you were mentioning that penicillium, which is another species uh, that can infect the plant, um, is sort of a similar thing where it can produce mycotoxins in the, um, in the flower. And I know that, you know, regulatory agencies aren't specifically looking for um, penicillium or Fusarium. Um, they'd be kind of covered under the total yeast and mold umbrella, but much like with, with Aspergillus, um, I mean, unless you're specifically looking for that, it can sort of get underneath that, that total threshold and, you know, maybe actually be uh, posing a risk to consumers. So that's a little, um, a little concerning and maybe something that regulatory agencies need to take another look at. Do you agree? Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, you guys at Medicinal Genomics were the first to actually show that some of these uh, penicillium species like Penicillium citronum and, and others are potential mycotoxin producers. I mean, and this was, was work that was published uh, three or four years ago by, by Kevin and so on and his group. And that sort of alerted me to the fact that we should be testing our, our uh, cannabis flower for, for penicillium as well. And sure enough, we, we found penicillium. It's... You know, penicillium is everywhere. Uh, it's found uh, in, in soil. It's found on plant material that's starting to, to decompose. It's found in compost. Um, it's found in people's homes. Like, it's not something that you necessarily can, can kind of eliminate from the growing environment. 
But what tends to happen is when you've got a lot of it building up, so let's say you've got some plant material that's decaying and producing a lot of spores or the floors aren't necessarily kept very clean or um, the filtering system or UV system isn't collecting all the spores, those penicillium spores land on the flowers and they can stay there. And after a while, they can start growing and producing uh, more spores, which in turn can then maybe lead to certain mycotoxins that are produced by by the penicillium species. So um, I know penicillium is, is a big component of the overall yeast and mold count. But as you yeah. mentioned, uh, all they do is count numbers, right? So once you get, you, you're under a certain limit, you're good to go. But uh, they could potentially be mycotoxins building up in there. Yeah, no, that's... And, and you mentioned sort of if you have plant material collecting and it reminded me of that slide that you had showed um, of, a, of a plate that you had left out in a trim room and just seeing the uh, the sheer amount of molds and, and things that grew on that um, that was that was pretty pretty shocking to see I, I was shocked when I when I saw that and and just to clarify there in the trim room you know those those flowers and those stems are really being agitated um, they're either going through some mechanical destemming process and that that physical um, breakage of that plant material, I think, is releasing a lot of spores, and they sort of, it, they're sort of like a think of the cloud effect. Those clouds yeah. are sort of moving up into the air. So when we put those plates out, when the spores landed back down onto the plates, and we had them out for about an hour, they were just covered in uh, penicillium spores. So, uh, you know, we're finding um, flowers that are that are dried, hang dried, and are not agitated to the same extent as as buds that are pushed through mechanical um, destemmers and and trimmers. Um, those me that mechanical agitation is causing more spores to build up on product than if you actually hang, hand dried those 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 stems. Yeah, and I have to imagine that if you're a um, if you're an employee there, you're you're breathing all of that in unless you're unless you're wearing a mask, and I'm not sure if they are. Um, I, I would think that if you're not, that's something that you definitely want to consider. Yeah, and that's the first recommendation we made is is uh, let's get those workers to wear, um, uh, you know, either N95 type masks or masks that would have respiratory abilities to take those spores out so that their, their lungs are not exposed to. And it's not just the spores, it's the dust as well. Right. Yeah, masks, they're, they're becoming... More and more common, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if folks adopted that. For sure. And another thing that stood out from that presentation was um, you actually looked at whether um, certain mediums were actually contaminated, and, and you were finding that um, some uh, coco coir that you had had looked at was was coming in contaminated. That was that was surprising to see as well. Yeah, and so you know, uh, you know, again, the cocoa core is nothing more than uh, plant material, mostly fibrous plant material that's that's you know taken out of the cocoa husk and and dried, and, and in some cases it's 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 sterilized, and then it's sort of packaged in in large bulks and shipped over from uh, overseas countries. So there's always a chance that uh, microbes and and mold and other things can be carried over. Um, nothing, you know, nothing in particular other than the penicillium and the aspergillus and so on. But once you place that cocoa in a moist environment, so you're wetting it up and you're adding fertilizer and you're using it as a growing substrate, that allows the, the residual spores that are in there to start with to all, all of a sudden start multiplying. 
And so what we were seeing is that when you had those cocoa substrates, um, spores were, were being produced that we were catching on these petri dishes that we were laying out. And the concern uh, was similar to the fusarium concern, is that once they get up into the air, they could then land on these flowers uh, that are maturing oh. or getting ready to be harvested. And then you're picking up the spores that, that were building up as a result of the substrate that you were using to grow the plants in. Right. And that's not to say that, you know, all, all microbes are bad, right? So there are certainly beneficial microbes that, that may be present in sort of an organic uh, medium like that as well, right? Yeah. And, and so we've actually sampled recently a lot of organic uh, substrates. And, and as you mentioned, the organic growers tend to use soil. And uh, soil is good uh, in the sense that it has a, a much better buffering capacity against pathogens than, let's say, hydroponics or, or rock wool. So the, on the positive side, we're seeing less disease develop uh, in, in roots and crowns of plants that are grown in soil because you've got so much of that buffering uh, capacity. Um, but we're finding more microbes in the air in an organic production system. Again, going back to this idea that soil has a lot of beneficials and other microbes in there, more of them are getting into the air um, than you would find perhaps in a hydroponic or, or a system that uses, is, uses rock wool. Um, the, the, the concern, the irony here is that even these beneficial microbes, let's say coming out of organic systems, if they do land on these flowers, they, they would be rated again as a general colony forming unit. Yep. And it may actually cause a lot of the, the product to fail. And, and, you know, as a general rule, and this is just sort of a broad statement, a lot of the organic, organic growers are having problems passing their product more so than, than, than the guys that are using hydroponic or rock wool. Because of that background level of microbes, some of which are beneficial, getting onto the flower and causing the plant, the product to be rejected because we don't discriminate right now between the good and the bad. Right. And that's something that we see on our end too, because obviously we're, we're involved in kind of testing the end product to make sure it doesn't have that, that contamination. Um, and yeah, we, we see cultivators that are using, you know, trichoderma, as you mentioned earlier, and other, these other beneficial microbes that, you know, might be testing hot for some of these total count tests. So um, I think it's great the work that you're doing and others are doing to sort of identify what are these harmful pathogens that are out there. And we can develop some species specific type testing to make sure that it's clean of that and sort of let the beneficial stuff go through, obviously, within reason. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think the problem is, is, is it adds an extra burden uh, on the on the companies that are testing uh, because it's so much easier to just say, oh, yeah, 10 to the 4 or 10 to the 3 colony-forming right. units. When you have to start distinguishing between them, uh, you need the PCR-based type assays that you guys are developing to say, okay, it's a trichoderma or it's a penicillium or it's an aspergillus or it's something in between. And I think that's going to be really important. And so I imagine that sort of the the goal would be eventually to maybe breed some varieties that have resistance to some of these pathogens, whether it be fusarium or powdery mildew or or things like that. And in general, how long does it take to to sort of do that, first of all? And then second, do we even really have a full picture of all the pathogens that can potentially infect the plant? Yeah, so um, with, with cannabis, I, I think breeding for resistance is quite doable, um, and a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, there's so much genetic diversity 
that I think it's not so much can we can we find it, it's how are we going to find it. Uh, I think the first step is going to be developing methods for screening. So whether you're screening for fusarium or if you're screening for powdery mildew resistance, we have to have some really good methods developed that uh, are actually already developed in other crops. So, you know, in tomato again, in, in um, cotton or basil, they've already developed methods for screening for fusarium and powdery mildew resistance. So we need to adapt those methods for, for cannabis. And then go out and, and do a major collection and maybe collect about 100 of these different strains or genotypes and then run these, these methods through and try to identify, um, let's say, five or 10 that show some level of resistance to either fusarium or, or powdery mildew. And then yeah, I think it's a matter of making crosses. So you induce some male flowers, collect the pollen, you know, make the crosses like most breeders uh, or most growers would, collect that seed. Uh, and then run the test again in the next generation to find those plants that that uh, may have picked up the resistance. So I think, you know, after three or four rounds of this testing, uh, we could identify potentially uh, certain strains or genotypes that have resistance. Yeah, and then second part of that question, do we even really have a full picture of the, the uh, full breadth of pathogens that can affect cannabis? Yeah, so you know, I go out to uh, I go out to the licensed growers uh, about once a week. Usually, I go out on Wednesday, so that's my cannabis day. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not, and it's, I'm not surprised where uh, we stumble across new diseases. And I'm not going to say there's like hundreds of them. I would say we're probably found maybe ten or fifteen. Um, and that's not to say that that's the maximum number of diseases we're found. There's going to be more. So you talk to the hemp growers in the U.S. They're always finding new diseases. There's um, diseases coming from a different crop. There's diseases coming from a different area. There may be diseases coming from uh, a, a windstorm or rainstorm that brings you know spores in from nearby areas. Um, at some point, we are going to max out. We'll probably have a full list of diseases that are out there. But you know, I think we've got the major ones. The major ones being powdery mildew, uh, botrytis, fusarium, uh, pythium, a uh, number of leaf spotting diseases that are found back east. And then, of course, a couple of virus diseases that we haven't quite um, worked on yet. So I think we're, the list is getting closer to being completed. At least I hope it is. Yeah, add it to the list of things in the cannabis industry that we don't quite have figured out yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I did want to shift gears a little bit because I know that um, your presentation at this year's CanMed um, isn't actually about plant pathogens. It's actually about um, the development of uh, cannabis trichomes. Um, so I want to give you an opportunity to talk a bit about that and uh, give us a little bit of a preview of what that's going to be about. Okay, yeah, and I'm sorry this this didn't work out for you guys this year to have the conference in, in uh, Pasadena, but um, hopefully next year when COVID gets a little bit um, easier to deal with. Um, yeah, I, I was going to talk about some of the work we've done with, with uh, trichome uh, development and trichome analysis. So what we've done is, is you know, there's a standard large piece of equipment called a scanning electron microscope. And what that allows you to do is actually magnify um, the, the bracts and the other tissues surrounding a cannabis flower where you can, you can magnify, let's say, 10,000 times and really get in there and start looking at these, these uh, developing trichomes. And we've found, well, we found two or three really interesting things. Um, the first would be that we've found four uh, different trichome types, and, and maybe I'll come back to that in a minute. There's, there's at least four different types um, 
the ones that we're all familiar with, of course, are the stalked glandular trichomes. Those are the ones that, that produce uh, most of the cannabinoids. Um, so we found the different types. We also found that there appears to be changes in numbers in those four as the plant matures. And so, again, as you probably would expect, uh, more of the glandular stalk trichomes are, are being seen as the flowers tend to mature because they're the ones, they're, they're the sort of the horsepower behind uh, producing all the cannabinoids. Uh, and then the other thing we, we did see is some differences between uh, varieties or between genotypes. And so the, the excitement there is that if you could correlate those different trichome types or different trichome numbers to final THC, CBD, and other cannabinoid ratios, then that would be a really powerful way to say, okay, I'm going to use, well, maybe not a scanning microscope, but I'm going to use a way to magnify those, those flowers and look at them and see uh, how many trichome types do I have and how many total numbers of trichomes do I have. And is that going to be a way for me to tell whether I've got 12% THC or 20% THC or not? So that's sort of where we're going with this study is, is trying to correlate what we're seeing visually with some uh, biochemical analysis of, of those flowers. So that's interesting. Is it possible that the different trichome types could actually be producing different cannabinoids? So that's a really interesting question. And, and um, so, so let me just tell you sort of what those four types are. The, f the first type is, is sort of the hair-like projections, the, the staculates as we call them, which really don't produce any cannabinoids at all. They have a, a protective function. They're the ones that, you know, these humongous hair-like structures that if I was an insect and I, I stumbled into them, it's going to be game over for me. So those definitely have a protective role. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, there's the stalked glandular trichomes, the ones that produce most of the, the cannabinoids. And then there's a, there's a shorter form of those, uh, which are the, what we call the sessile glandular. And the sessile are pretty much um, the same as the, the, the glandular, except they have way lower levels of cannabinoids. In other words, they're, they're an immature form of the, the stalked glandular. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the second type. Uh, the third type is uh, what we call bulbous, and the bulbous are tiny. They're so small that, that you could never see them with, even with a magnifying glass. You really have to have a high-power microscope to see those. And so I don't know what those are doing uh, in terms of their function. Are they producing cannabinoids? Are they producing terpenes maybe? I, I don't know. Um, and then the fourth type is what we call the peltate. And those are um, sort of like half-moon-shaped. In the microscope, they're half-moon-shaped. They're like saucers, upside-down saucers, sitting on the surface of a leaf. They don't have a stalk. Um, they're pretty large. You can see them. And again, I don't know what the function of those are. It may be terpenes. It may be cannabinoids. That's really interesting. Um, and then I, I thought reading through the abstract, it, it looked like you had looked at two different types or two different um, cultivars. Is it possible that if you were to survey more, you might even find other types of trichomes? Yeah, it, it, it's possible. So we, we picked those two because they differed quite a bit in the, in the THC content. So one was like 10% and, and the other was like around 18. Uh, and, and I think we saw that in the 18%, the higher uh, THC uh, CBD type strains, they were um, larger numbers of trichomes and the stalks on those trichomes were much longer. In other words, they, they were the type of uh, strain that you looked at with a, with a hand lens and you, you could see the trichomes really clearly. 
uh, and you could differentiate whether or not they were so sort of the milky type or whether they were the so sort of the amber colored uh, type. So at least for those trichomes, we think there's a correlation between the final THC content and the trichome numbers. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing those pictures. If they're anything like the the photos that you presented at CAMED 2018 with the, the close-up of powdery mildew and, and things like that inf infecting the plant, that's it's pretty amazing stuff to look at. I, I encourage anyone to go back and, and view the video of, um, of Zamir's presentation at 2018 because that was uh that was certainly a hit yeah I, I tell you ben these these pictures are are way better i mean i i was i'm really really excited next year to try to present those because i i look at them every once in a while and i, I think i'm like I'm, out, I'm i'm in outer space i'm sitting on the moon somewhere and these huge projectiles because they're massive in the microscope they're scanning they're huge uh, and they're amazing they're just an amazing sight well, I'm looking forward to it. I think that's a good, I think that's a great place to stop. Um, thanks again, Zamir, for, for taking the time to, to talk with us. And I look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena this spring. Thanks a lot, Ben. And I appreciate uh, all the work you guys are doing and hosting all these, these Canamed conferences. They're, they're a great way to meet people. They're a great way to socialize. And I'm, I'm sorry we couldn't have done it this year. It'll just be bigger and better next year. Okay, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Samir Punja. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to our sponsors, The Growers Network and The Hemp Coffee Exchange. Our next episode will drop September 16th in the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into that drawing for two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and also keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2021. If social media is more your thing, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you are listening via a podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so new episodes will automatically download to your device. And if you'd like to leave us a five-star review, we'd really appreciate that as well. All right, that's it from us. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.